Welcome to the Common Ground Initiative. I'm Anthony Payton, and I hope to highlight the diversity of our communities with stories of people the average Granite Stater might not get to see or meet. The goal is to clarify misconceptions and find the thread that binds us all together as one New Hampshire community. Back home in New York, you can ride the subway two inches away from people struggling with severe mental health issues. Ride the train long enough, and you likely see someone urinating or defecating in the stairwells. Some of those people will walk the dangerous tracks, flirting with death by electrocution or being struck by a train. You see the homeless people asleep with pungent body odor, sometimes talking to themselves. And the levels of violence vary. After some time, any New Yorker would tell you that they've become accustomed to and even indifferent to a mental health system that seems to be failing and social workers who are overwhelmed. When I was 14, my friends and I would chalk it up to those people being crazy. None of us were qualified to diagnose mental health struggles, but we were familiar with terms like schizophrenia and multiple personality disorders. Although I now know that mental health issues affect everyone, back then, those people didn't look like me and I associated those types with the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. In my world, we thought mental health only meant extreme circumstances like these, and there wasn't any talk about depression, anxiety, or mental wellness. In my neighborhood, the primarily black folks would scoff at the idea of mental health evaluations and assistance. We have a life expectancy of maybe 24 years. Childhood friends are trying to murder each other, and the drug lords are flaunting true economic stability. So spare me your advice about mental health. Then, I didn't realize that Black people are more likely than whites to experience emotional distress. Black people living in poverty, like I was, are at double the risk of serious psychological distress. The barriers to treatment, like not having health insurance, means that even people of color who are willing to ask for help can't always access it. Looking back, I can see how my mental health was affected by my life circumstances. In my darkest moments, I had to remember that there were valleys and peaks in life. And if I happened to be in the valley, I reminded myself that a peak would surely come. The situation was temporary and things would improve. Besides, I loved to laugh and crack jokes and was confident that my sense of humor would help me get through those dire times. I beat the drum to that tune for nearly seven years and it was my mantra and positive self-talk. I've done this plenty of times. I had it all figured out. From gun violence, prison riots, and helping to thwart suicide attempts in prison, I skated through my post-traumatic stress disorder gleefully, oblivious to its true long-lasting impact. Prison can make a person apathetic, amongst other things, and I'm just learning that apathy can also signify a mental health struggle. I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2015, although I'm sure I had it at least 20 years prior. Maybe PTSD is the reason that I still vape periodically. Perhaps that's why I sometimes isolate and sit with my back to the walls, needing to see what's coming at me even in the most family-friendly restaurants. Ask any military vet or anyone else who's been through trauma. I'm sure the stories are similar at every level. I'm fortunate. I don't hear voices or think about harming myself or others. It's not easy to count the people who struggle in silence with what feels like insurmountable internal strife only to be brushed off by close ones who sometimes don't give the best advice. In addition, 
We can't forget the youth whose mental health struggles have reached new levels during the COVID quarantines and homeschooling. We expected these precious children to bounce back from isolation and go against the need and instinct to socialize. Any of my readers understand that I'm all for people with lived experience assisting those in need. A peer support specialist is someone who uses their lived experiences to help those who may be struggling with similar problems. That commonality and authenticity can form stronger bonds with people struggling with everything from mental health issues to substance abuse, post-incarceration, and different types of trauma. This is an approach the mental health community has embraced, relying on people in recovery from mental illness to support others with more active challenges. Peers are an asset for establishments right now, especially in the mental health and substance abuse disorder treatment facilities, said Brett Smith, who is the lead peer specialist for the Mental Health Center of Greater Manchester. Brett says, we are specialists in building connections and trust with those in need through lived experiences. Randy Stevens is a peer support specialist who has faced his own adversities, including childhood trauma, incarceration, and substance abuse. Nowadays, his training and life experience makes him an effective peer counselor who understands the power of seeking professional help. Randy says that when someone is at a point in their life where they feel lost, hopeless, and alone, seeking professional help can be life-changing. Reaching out for help is not easy, and when you do, you can find people who are able and willing to help you gain control of your life. For Randy, it wasn't until he stopped trying to do it alone and asked for help that things began to change. If we had to construct and engineer a perfect world, I'm almost certain that understanding and empathy would be in the toolbox. Paul Dan is an executive director for NFI North, a nonprofit that serves people with mental health concerns. He says that we're quick to talk about our recent surgery or physical ailment, but are reticent to talk openly about our mental health. Let's expand how we think about mental health stop compartmentalizing our psychological self from our physical self, and work to create a community where people feel supported as a whole person, Dan says. Nowadays, I'm almost done with the vape, and I can eat with my back to the door without being too uncomfortable. And although I'm not in formal therapy, I'm blessed to be surrounded by mental health professionals with whom I can speak to, and that's fine. Communities of color shouldn't feel ashamed of seeking help and assistance for depression, anxiety, or thoughts of suicide. We must move away from those stereotypes that have shaped our thinking regarding mental health. Yes, we are strong and resilient people who have survived countless atrocities and injustices. However, it doesn't mean that we should suffer in silence with issues that we may deem not as important, like sadness or anxiety. We need to check those emotions and feelings and be able to unload with a professional. Even more so, we need to raise the next generation similarly. I want my daughter to see my healthy reactions to stressful situations so she can learn to do the same. I want her to see those good habits and be empathetic to others going through a host of problems. Be kind to people because you never know. You just never know. This is Anthony Payton with the Common Ground Initiative in association with the Granite State News Collaborative and the Marlin Fitzwater Center for Communication at Franklin Pierce University. Today, I'm with my guest, Ms. Nicole Sublette. Hello, Nicole, how are you? I'm well, Anthony, how are you? Oh, I'm great, I'm great. Thank you for being here. So please tell our audience who you are and what it is that you do. Absolutely, so I am a licensed clinical mental health counselor and I have a private practice in 
Manchester, New Hampshire. I primarily specialize in anxiety, depression, PTSD, and trauma. Great. So being in the field, how have you seen the mental health field change for the better? And what is it that may still be missing? So what I have seen is what has been improved is the advent of telehealth. And telehealth has been really wonderful because it makes therapy accessible to people who might not otherwise have therapy accessible, especially being one of the few uh, BIPOC clinicians in the state. It allows people to see me and allows me to access people all around the state without them necessarily having to travel. And also people with you know disabilities and they might not be able to make it into the office. So it just makes therapy far, far more accessible, which is really wonderful. As far as where mental health needs to grow, I think that mental health needs to grow in the way that when we're talking about cultural responsiveness for serving clients in that I know it's an up and coming and it's on the forefront of the law and minds of clinicians. However, in the past, the people who had access to mental health services, which happened to be a lot of white populations, they were able to access it, whereas more diverse populations did not have a lot of access. And then a lot of the studies for mental health efficacy were primarily done on middle-aged white males. So a lot of the principles and a lot of the concepts and a lot of the evidence-based treatment modalities are really only for a certain sample size and specific population. So when you speak about BIPOC communities and Black communities, have we begun to chip away at the stigma in Black or BIPOC communities regarding mental health? You know, I think that's a really super interesting question. And you know, when I think about like stigma, stigma is something that like we think about as like an internalization. Like I have a stigma towards something because I don't want to do it or stigma as a reticence to do something as an internalization. But we have to actually broaden the scope and think actually more systemically. Why is there and we have to ask, why is there a stigma? There's a stigma because there is a reluctance sometimes to seek health care due to often the historic misdiagnosis specifically of black Americans. And they tended to be misdiagnosed at higher rates, have been exploited by the government and the medical community in the name of medical advancement. And another reason is too, if we think about incarceration and we think about the prison populations that black Americans make up 33% of those sentenced to prison and only make about 13% of the adult population is that people are fearful of disclosing maybe a mental health struggle. What might happen to them? What might their repercussion be? And so I think it's just really important to think about where the stigma came from. And it really came from historical exploitation. Wow, that was a great point. So how do we go about offering an ear or a kind word to someone who may be struggling with something? I think it's about active listening. And what I mean by active listening, oftentimes when we listen to people, we already have a response in our minds or we're already thinking about what we want to say or we're thinking about whatever. Maybe we're thinking about the weather. But active listening is being open, receptive, and present. And so how we can lend an ear is by maybe suspending thought and really focusing on what someone's saying. And if we're finding that someone's really struggling with mental health or they're 
maybe struggling with their emotions, maybe they're struggling with their thoughts. We can be really present to what somebody's saying. And then at that point, we can really be aligned with them and maybe say, well, what can I do to help you? What can I do to be of service to you? What can I do to support you? And also, if it feels like something beyond the scope of what you can handle, say, well, maybe it might be beneficial to get some additional care for yourself, depending on what somebody's saying. But I think it's just really important to be present, open, and listening. And also remember that when we are open, present, and listening, that if you're not a therapist, if you're, if you're not a professional, please don't try to take it on. That can be very, very dangerous. So it's always important to support someone in recommending getting help and seeking treatment. And if they feel nervous, being along and being supportive and being present for their processing. You know what, you know, you, if you want to make that call, I'll be there. I'll be here to help you. I'll be here to support you. Well, that's a great segue into the next question. So what resources should our audience use if they or a loved one may be having thoughts of suicide? So there's been this new beautiful line called 988. In the past, we used to call 911, which was an intervention where maybe the police would come. So now we have 988, which is a suicide crisis and lifeline for folks who feel like they need additional support and care. That's great. And Nicole, how can people get in touch with you? I know you have a website. Yes. So people can just Google Nicole Sublette Counseling, and that's N-I-C-O-L-E. And the Sublette is S-U-B-L-E-T-T-E. Once again, it's S-U-B-L-E-T-T-E. So just Nicole Sublette Counseling, and people can certainly contact me through that site and send me an email if they would like to connect further. Nicole, thank you for a great interview with the Common Ground Initiative, and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Anthony. Yeah, but there's one more question that we ask all of our guests. And I'm a foodie, you know, I cook at the Cypress Center. So right now, if you're hungry, you get ready to go into your refrigerator. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And if you're going out, what are you grabbing? Oh, I love food too. So for myself, if I'm going to cook, I love to use like a lot of fresh foods and eating seasonally. And so I think if you're going to go out, any, any kind of menu that boasts like eating seasonally is always just a recommendation, but there's so many great restaurants in Manchester, New Hampshire, that it's really hard for me to pick one. Right. Right. And, and, you know, when you talk about um, healing and mental health, food can go a very long way, you know, to an empty stomach, helping people get back on track. So that um, is very, very big to me. So thank you again, Nicole. I know you have things to do, but we really appreciate your presence and hopefully people reach out and take advantage of, of opportunities that are laying there for them to help them get better. Awesome. Thank you, Anthony, so much. This program was produced in collaboration with me, Anthony Payton, the Granite State News Collaborative, and the Marlin Fitzwater Center for Communication. You can read more of my work at collaborativenh.org and listen to more of these stories wherever you can get your favorite podcasts. 